Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fact or Fiction, a podcast we are hosting here at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Ted Barron. I'm the executive director of the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. I'm also teaching a course titled Documentary Fact or Fiction, in which we're looking at a group of films that sort of challenge the notion of what documentary is and raise questions about how we perceive elements of realism in cinema and what we ultimately trust in our cinematic imagery. This week, we're going to be looking at two films, one a short piece and one a feature-length film, both of which are, uh, were filmed in Cuba and give us a chance to reflect on questions of representation, one coming from the outside of Cuba, one coming from inside. The first is Salut les Cubains, which came out in 1963, directed by Agnes Varda. The second, One Way or Another, directed by Sarah Gomez, came out in 1974. Salut les Cubains is a film that was shot on location in Cuba, as was one way or another, by famed director Agnes Varda. Now, Varda is an amazing figure in the history of cinema. I don't want to just say that she's, you know, one of the most important uh, female directors or French directors. She really is just an an incredible presence in uh, modern cinema. Uh, if you look at the uh, the depth of her career, the range of films that she that she directed, uh, we could do a whole podcast just on Varda. But um, one of the reasons why she fits interestingly into this, and we won't go into a a full kind of overview of her career, um, is that um, she she was notable in the way that she would move back and forth between documentary and fiction filmmaking throughout her career. Sometimes she'd even combine the two in really interesting ways. So Salut les Cubains is a film that uh, she uh, made in 1960, or started making in 1962, ultimately finished in 1963. She serves uh, not only as the director of the film, but as the co-narrator, along with the French actor Michel Piccoli. And what's immediately um, distinct about the film is that it's almost entirely comprised of still images using a kind of photo montage technique, which drew, uh, which was something that was inspired by um, filmmakers who were kind of her contemporaries uh, in the in the left bank movement, uh, which was the sort of more intellectual group of filmmakers um, that were kind of loosely affiliated with the French New Wave, um, including Alan René, who directed Night and Fog, and Chris Marker. Um, who notably uh, made the film La Jetée, uh, which, again, uses this still imagery uh, format that uh, that Varda would later adopt. Uh, Marker had just uh, returned from a trip to Cuba and um, helped to kind of foster the idea that uh, that Varda could herself, she herself could also make a film uh, using this technique. Um, she claims that it was a practical choice, that she didn't have to um, lug around uh, camera and sound equipment. She was concerned about, you know, the quality of sound recording that she would be able to capture on location in Cuba. But there's also um, documents which suggest that um, she actually didn't have the proper permits to uh, film in Cuba. So kind of a, an uncertain uh, sourcing of, of how this project was launched. Um, she um, took a uh, collaborative approach in, in making the film, working with other um, artists and, and filmmakers, but um, largely kind of basing um, the 
content of the film around a series of photographs that she took after she had been invited to Cuba by uh, the Cuban Institute on Cinema- Cinematographic Arts and Industry, uh, better known as the ICAIC. We're going to reference the ICAIC at, at a couple of different points in, in this podcast this week because they were essentially the state-funded, uh, uh, state-run uh, film Institute in Cuba and have been incredibly influential not only on the production of film within the country but also um, in the world at large. So as part of Varda's visit, she decided to kind of go out into the streets and film uh, life in the kind of immediate aftermath of uh, Castro's revolution. Um, and what we get is a kind of very celebratory portrait uh, of, of, what, um, of what she saw. Uh, a really heavy emphasis on um, elements of dance and music. Um, in, in particular, she focuses in on the um, singer Benny Moray, um, who she gives his own kind of moment uh, within the film when we get to see him uh, perform a dance. Uh, but it's also accompanied by a really spirited um, soundtrack of Cuban music uh, that kind of carries this, this celebratory mood throughout the film. So while she was filming, she shot over 4,000 stills. And then uh, after her visit to Cuba, she spent the next six months editing those, fo- editing those images down to a selection of about 1,500, which are, um, which are included in the film. And these include um, shots of filmmakers and photographers. Um, there's a scene that she films early on uh, in the film, which is actually which actually took place in Paris when a group of Cuban artists uh, put on an exhibition in Paris, and we see filmmakers like Alan Rene alongside Varda as they're uh, as they're filming one of the performances that was included as part of the Cubans' uh, visit to Paris. Um, but that process of kind of seeing. Um, stills of uh, photographers and filmmakers kind of documenting these experiences give the film a really strong kind of reflexive quality. We're aware of these images kind of as they're being constructed. And similarly, as we're watching things like a dance sequence, but a dance sequence constructed out of still images, it kind of it draws our attention to the fact that you know we're we're not just simply watching a seamless presentation of a performance, but we're aware of how that's being constructed. Um, this is a film that uh, was um, you know received well at its time, uh, didn't have a, a huge impact at the time. Um, it actually um, gained more of an audience in the mid two thousands when it was re-released um, in the wake of her acclaimed essay film, The Gleaners and I, which is a film uh, I highly recommend, um, actually fits well into the context of a lot of the films that we're discussing in this podcast series. Um, but Salut Les Cubans, on its re-release, it was paired with, uh, or it, was, it was released as part of a triptych of films that she had made about photography. And um, while, you know, Vard is well aware of her position as kind of an outsider documenting the Cuban experience, um, she, she really took care to try to be faithful to what she thought was a kind of authenticity um, to what life was like, uh, in, in particularly in Havana at the time. Um, so that's the short film uh, that sort of that makes up this this particular program. Um, the feature length film is a is a piece that was actually uh, long uh, was unavailable for a long time. It's only recently been uh, restored and reissued thanks to the good people at Janus Films. 
Um, and that's One Way or Another, which is directed by uh, Sarah Gomez, came out in 1974. When Sarah Gomez had a chance to reflect on her own kind of filmmaking practices and particularly the work of Cuban filmmakers, she said the following, Cuban filmmakers will always express themselves in terms of revolution. Cinema for us will inevitably be partial. It will be determined by our awareness. It will be the result of a definite attitude toward the problems that arise. And it is that in a society that sets as its goal the need to transform everything, even itself. Artists express themselves as long as they reflect that desperate need. Expressing that anguish, anguish will be culturally valid. So that's Gomez kind of talking about um, the act of documentary filmmaking, but also particularly from the Cuban perspective. Gomez was an Afro-Cuban uh, female director um, who had actually trained as a pianist when she was younger and, and had real promise to become a concert pianist, uh, but decided to switch to journalism uh, in, her, in her teen years um, and actually started to write for youth magazines um, initially, but then also became, you know, very much involved in uh, communist politics, which was, you know, again, the ruling ideology in Cuba and still is today. Um, eventually, she recognized that film could be an interesting kind of extension of her work in journalism. So she uh, eventually joins up with the ICAIC, um, mentioned previously, where she studied editing and directing and really stood out as someone with a, a particularly um, – as a particular talent among the class of, of filmmakers um, that she was coming up with. From, from the 1960s through the early 1970s, she directed approximately 10 documentary shorts. And while formally speaking, these are, these are fairly more conventionally um, – uh, styled films. They, you know, they look more like, you know, what we expect documentaries to look like if we have, you know, more traditional ideas of the form. But she started to take up uh, questions of Cuban identity, which, you know, were partly informed by the fact that she was one of the few women uh, working at the ICIC, but also uh, ICAIC. Um, but she also, as someone of uh, Afro-Cuban heritage, um, had a kind of outsider status among among her white peers, uh, which also um, kind of fed into some of the some of the subjects that she would explore um, in those films, and then take up again in using a more radical approach in one way or another. Um, a side note, which is interesting, is one of her early credits was that she actually uh, worked as an assistant to to Agnes Varda on Salut les Cubains. Um, we actually see her within the film, uh, within Varda's film. She appears near the end of the film, uh, dancing the cha-cha. Varda, uh, who refers to her as, who refers to Gomez as Sarita, uh, describes her as a director of educational films, and, and notes that you know she, along with other filmmakers from the ICIC and, and some actors, are, are going to now perform a cha-cha for you. And then we see this really lovely sequence. Um, much like the Benny Murray sequence earlier in Salut Le Caban, where they um, where they dance uh, for the camera. Um, Gomez also served as an assistant to um, one of the most acclaimed Cuban filmmakers of the 1960s, Tomas Gutierrez Alea, on his film Memories of Underdevelopment, which is seen as which is often regarded as kind of the seminal work of this post-revolutionary Cuban cinema. Um, and, and they developed a very close relationship. Um, he was very supportive of her as a filmmaker. So when she kind of ventured out to make her, her first feature film, 
she decided to make some really key um, decisions with regard to how she would style the film. So one big decision was that she chose to shoot the film using handheld 16 millimeter uh, camera uh, cinematography. So not you know filming off of tripods, and and more notably not using 35 millimeter film, even though at that point in history, uh, 35 millimeter film was regularly used by Cuban filmmakers. But um, because of the approach that that Gomez wanted to take, she really wanted to prioritize uh, more of a, a documentary technique and actually drawing from uh, some of the techniques of the cinema verite movement, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, the film was actually very tightly scripted for the for in terms of the overall structure, but she did leave space so that there could be numerous scenes of improvisation within the film. So while the structure was very clear, she also set it up um, so that you know there could be kind of a looseness within within that structure. The actors who we see uh, within the film were actually cast in roles. Uh, in which their actual names are attributed to the characters. So we meet a character named Mario. He's played by Mario Balmaceda. Um, Yolanda is played by Yolanda Cuellar. Um, kind of making that easier connection, but also kind of drawing from the influences of neorealism in which there was often this kind of blurry line between who these actors were in their everyday life and the characters that they would play. Alongside that, there's, there's a group of non-actors who we see within the film um, who typically play supporting roles in um, in scenes that that kind of drew on more of her interest in uh, kind of improvising uh, and not necessarily following the the strict guidelines of of her script. Um, the thing that that's often noted most significantly about Sarah Gomez is uh, the fact that she um, passed away at a very early age. So in 1974, just as she was completing the film. Um, she died due to complications from an asthma attack, and she was only 31 at the time. Uh, so very sadly, you know, a, ta- a great talent coming out of Cuba had her you know, life cut short and really seemed to have promise of becoming a, a key voice for um, Cuban cinema during this, during this really fertile period. Um, Gutierrez Alea, um, you know, who she worked with previously, ultimately took up the task of finishing the process of editing the film. And it actually remained unreleased for a few years. Um, uh, it, it comes out in the U.S. in 1977, but only after um, it had kind of sat for a while. It, and in the aftermath of that, it was largely unavailable until uh, until recent, or at least only available in, in sort of secondhand kind of beat up um, uh, screening copies, whereas now there's been a, a lovely restoration, um, as I previously noted. So what's this film about? So I've already been talking about actors and improvisation and, you know, um, you know, kind of how this film was cast, which may seem strange because it's in the context of documentary film. Um, this really is a, a true hybrid of documentary and fiction. Um, you know, in, the, in setting out to make this film, uh, Gomez saw that there were qualities in both kind of tradition in the traditional elements of both narrative storytelling that we associate with fiction film and with uh, the sort of the documentary approach that she figured out a way to kind of bring those elements together. Um, it's a film, you know, in terms of period, it's, you know, while the Varda film is kind of in this sort of celebratory 
um, honeymoon period after the revolution. Now we're at a point in the early 1970s where things have changed a bit. Um, it's a period that's sometimes referred to as the gray years in Cuba or five gray years in which um, Soviet economic interests had become uh, much more prominent and were actually, um, because of their economic influence within Cuba, because of the Soviet influence within Cuba, it actually encouraged a great deal of cultural repression. So um, some of this had to do with, you know, kind of uh, racial um, uh, discrimination within the country. Some of it had to do with issues around LBGTQ people. Um, also, you know, just kind of, um, you know, just a, a sense of the, a, a cultural shift, which is something that's at the core of uh, what Gomez wanted to explore within her film. So we have um, kind of a split between the narrative sections of the film and the documentary sections of the film. In the narrative sections of the film, this period of the gray years really manifests in a, 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 a romantic relationship that's put at the center of the film between Mario, uh, who's a factory worker trying to live up to the ideal of the, the Cuban ideal of what was known as the hombre nuevo. Uh, which is a term uh, coined by Che Guevara to reference um, kind of a shift uh, toward um, Marxist idealism and to break away from sort of the traditions of, you know, uh, Cuban masculinity toward the new kind of good worker figure um, in Cuba. Um, he's paired up with Yolanda, who is a, um, a, a middle-class teacher working in the Miraflores neighborhood of Havana, which was a traditionally black neighborhood in the city. Um, we also are uh, actually introduced initially in the film to another key character, Umberto, who's also, you know, again, part of this fictional world. He's a co-worker of Mario's who is referred to by B. Ruby Rich as an incorrigible macho and slackered. Um, again, kind of playing off of this uh, more um, regressive uh, but, but familiar figure within uh, Cuban culture at the time. He's at risk of losing his factory job because he's been, uh, he's been uh, mysteriously absent uh, from work. And, we, and the film opens with a hearing about, the fi- about his absences, uh, which we later learn to kind of sort of spoil the structure slightly that this is actually chronologically it's an event that takes place uh, much later in the narrative timeline of the film. Um, but the reason that he, they're having this hearing is that he's been missing work and he claims that he's been caring for his sick mother. We learn otherwise and it, and it just brings up a lot of issues around these types of figures in Cuban society. Certainly Gomez wanted to offer some scrutiny and criticism of those of, of those representations. So we go from this opening scene of the hearing uh, for, for Umberto to um, some very clearly delineated documentary segments. And while some of the transitions between um, the fiction segments and the, and the documentary segments are very abrupt and seem kind of messy, um, that's, that seems to be by design. There is, uh, you know, Gomez wants to use these in very kind of provocative ways and to not create a, a kind of seamless experience in, in the way that she moves back and forth. But when she goes into documentary modes, uh, she is very conventional in the documentary um, uh, segments. Um, the, the films use kind of traditional expository documentary approaches. We see maps, archival footage, uh, voiceover narration. Um, and, and within those segments, she's trying to take up what she thinks are important subjects within Cuba at the time. Um, the history of the slave trade, which has kind of fostered 
uh, this element of marginalization of the working class, again, often racially, racially marginalized, uh, speaking from her own experience as, as an Afro-Cuban woman, um, you know, living through that period of transition. She had very strong feelings about that. Um, her, you know, her, her position as a woman in a field that was dominated by men, um, brought, you know, a lot, gives her kind of the, the voice to, to address particular gender issues, um, as we see in the impact of the Abaqua, which was a voodoo sect um, exclusive to Cuban men, which seemed to kind of reinforce these traditional ideas of, of you know, sort of Cuban machismo and, the, and kind of the problems associated with it. Uh, and then we're also just kind of seeing um, a, a continued representation of uh, demolition of housing. And the, the credit sequence at the opening of the film, we see wrecking balls kind of going through these poor neighborhoods of Havana, which are supposed supposed to be making way for new constructions and new possibilities. But you know, uh, Gomez looks at this critically, kind of suggesting that you know maybe these solutions that are being proposed aren't necessarily going to solve. Um, you know, solve the problems that she that, that that they're hoping to do, um, but the but you know what's great about the documentary segments is that it gives Gomez this chance to address more directly um, these questions about you know whether the communist project within Cuba is successful and how it's you know while it's proposing ideas that are supposed to be so liberating to people, how there are aspects of it which are actually reinforcing. Um, uh, you know, more traditional aspects of Cuban society and kind of exposing the contradictions within Cuban society. So um, so we have these kind of clear breaks between fiction and nonfiction within the film. Um, and I think part of it is it gives her space to use those forms to actually kind of comment on each other. Um, when we're in a fiction segment, it's not so rigidly, you know, constructed, although, you know, they're very clearly delineated. We know when we're watching kind of the fiction elements versus the nonfiction elements. But in the way that she styles those sequences, they almost provide a kind of commentary on each other and kind of questions the way in which we use those, those types of cinema to kind of understand truth, and um, and I think in that in that interplay between those segments, we realize that we can get just as much truth out of the fictional segments as uh, as in those nonfiction moments. So you know the film, but the film is ultimately more open ended, um, and particularly the way it, it leaves the relationship between Mario and Yolanda uh, unresolved. Um, uh, kind of almost seems to kind of leave us, it really kind of leaves us hanging as we expect, you know, what's going to happen with this particular couple. Um, the film raises more questions than it answers. And I think that's, again, by design, because these are kind of unsettled issues within Cuba at the time. Um, but the the prominence of gender issues really have cast it as, a, as an important work in 1970s feminist cinema. And the more you know, politicized Latin America of the 1970s, the way that she's able to address not only gender issues, but racial issues, class issues. Um, these are all kind of at the foreground of a really burgeoning uh, Latin American cinema in the 1970s. And I think for the context of documentary, you know, of this, these questions around documentary kind of suggests a form where, you know, the, the fiction form and the nonfiction form can kind of coexist and really be productive as a way to understand 
how you know both uh, both approaches work within cinema. So um, that's uh, one way or another. Um, we're going to be screening it along with Salu Le Kuban. And next week we'll be back uh, with another episode uh, where we'll continue our exploration of documentary factor fiction. <laughs>